0: I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 57 of chapter 27 and going through verse 15 of chapter 28. As you're turning there, let me ask, are you familiar with the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? Are you familiar with it? But before you might be tempted to start listing the facts around these events, like so-and-so saw them at such-and-such such a point, and, um, or maybe you're tempted to start getting your apologetic you know, checklist of here's, here's how I can prove that this was a historical event that happened, let me ask it in a different way. Is your familiarity with the resurrection of Jesus the type of familiarity that fuels your walk with the Lord? Or is it a familiarity kind of caught up in Easter lilies and things like that 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 is actually sort of dusting over the glorious reality of this event? Does the resurrection kind of just sit at the back of your mind, sort of like your homeowner's insurance? You know, the Allstate ad, There when you need us. Is that kind of how the resurrection is is, is operating in your life as a Christian? Or is this event the ignition for your faith? Is it the thing that wakes you up in the morning excited to be with Jesus and to be on mission for him and to lay your life down in service to him? Is it fresh and invigorating? When your hope seems lost? When sin seems overwhelming to you? when your life seems mundane, or maybe when everything is just going exactly the way you want it, then, in these moments, is your faith being deepened when you think of your risen king? Friends, God wants us to see this morning from his word that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything everything. So as we read this together, let me just encourage you just to be asking God this morning as we're reading the text, and as we're walking through it together, just just be praying that God would give you a fresh sense of what this resurrection means for you as a Christian. Just ask him that that he would make it fresh and invigorating and, and restorative no matter where you find yourself today because the resurrection changes everything about your life as a Christian. Don't settle for a familiarity that kind of is like dusty books on a shelf. We haven't looked at it in a while, but seek a familiarity that ignites your heart in love of Jesus. That's what the resurrection should do for us. And we're going to see that because it's what it did for the people who saw him alive. So let's dig in this morning. I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's a little bit long. I think it'll be worth it because I'd rather you hear the word of God than my voice. Matthew chapter 27 starting in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, we're going to break this passage down into two parts. We're going to finish out chapter 27, as part one, and then we'll look at the 15 verses of chapter 28 for part two. This first part, Matthew just simply wants us to see that Jesus really died. He's, he's really dead. Let's look at it, starting in verse 57. When it was evening, this guy named Joseph, Matthew tells us he's, he's a rich man, he's very wealthy, and he happens to be a disciple of Jesus. Other places in in the Gospels, we know that he was a member of the council, so a Sanhedrin member, a good and righteous, upright Jew who was seeking the kingdom of God. And notice that he has enough social influence and ability that he can go to Pilate. Like We we can't walk into the White House and meet with the president. Probably can't do so with the governor of Wisconsin. Joseph can go straight to Pilate. And make this request. And what's amazing about his request is Joseph leverages his extravagant wealth in order to bury a crucified criminal as if he was royalty. See, in doing this, Joseph is essentially committing social suicide. He's risking everything he has, all of his influence, his family ties, his, his faith as a Jew, so that he can identify himself With Jesus. This is in stark contrast to his disciples who, before Jesus was even put on the cross, had fled. They're absent from this scene, and yet here's Joseph showing us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to give up everything to identify with him. It's beautiful. It's not just Joseph here who, you know, he does all these arrangements. He takes the body and he, he puts it in a tomb. He, he knows that Jesus is dead. Matthew, even in the text, wants us to see that he's dead. There's five references to the body of Jesus, starting in verse 58. Joseph went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen. Verse 60, and laid it in his own new tomb. This isn't an almost dead person who needs a little resuscitation. This is a dead body. And Joseph is preparing the body of Jesus for burial. He really died. The two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they're also by the tomb. So they see the body brought and placed into this tomb. They see the stone rolled in front of the mouth of it. Pilate himself knows that Jesus is dead, right? He, he's, he's in charge of the executions. There's no way that he would let a living criminal come off of a cross in chance of escape. Pilate knows he's dead too. And what's amazing about this event is the clock's ticking, right? Jesus died about three in the afternoon. At six o'clock at sundown, the Sabbath would start, which means that Joseph... Has about a three hour window to go to Pilate, to prepare the body, to get it in the tomb, make all these arrangements. So the clock's really ticking. That's important because Joseph is doing this work to ensure that he will keep the Sabbath. At sundown, Joseph will cease to work. Why is that important, you might ask? Look at verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, Matthew wants us to see something by not explicitly saying, on the Sabbath, we should should sort of pause over these words and go, okay, well, what's the day after preparation? It's the day you prepare for. It's the Sabbath. And look who's working. It's not Joseph. It's not the people burying Jesus. It's not the ladies sort of, you know, putting flowers by the tomb or anything like that. It's the chief priests, the Pharisees. The people who are supposed to be the protectors of the Sabbath. They're the ones still working on this day of rest. To keep holy and precious to God. Matthew wants to see they're they're not about the things of God here. But notice that they also believe that Jesus is dead. Verse 63. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. Right? They, they know that Jesus is dead. And, and what's amazing is when they say in verse 63, we remember, it's quite ironic that the enemies of Jesus are the ones who remember his words that he would be raised. They're the ones who take Jesus literally. They don't believe he's going to be raised, but they at least take his words literally. And so they're going to ensure that they squelch this message. Their assessment of Jesus and his claims about himself are plain. They call him an imposter. And then in verse 64, they go on to speak of the last fraud being worse than the first. What you need to realize about these frauds, the first fraud is that Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. The second fraud is that he claimed he was going to be raised from the dead. Well, they, they think they took care of the first fraud because they, they had him killed and they think, well, we can, we can take care of the second fraud easy enough by securing this tomb and making sure that his disciples don't try any funny business. All of this is taking place on the Sabbath day when Jesus' disciples are resting. They're nowhere near the tomb. Notice their plan of action. And ironically, it's a plan that works absolutely against them and their purposes. But they, they go to Pilate and say, sir, we, we want to put We need you to give us some soldiers so that we can put a guard at this tomb so that uh, we can ensure that three days pass without any sort of tomfoolery. We think his disciples might try something funny and and come and steal this body and then go, hey, he's alive, he's alive, everybody amazing. That fraud would be worse than the first. So Pilate, give us some some troops, and, and Pilate sort of, I think, seems to just dismiss him. Kind of like when he washes hands of the innocent man's blood at the trial and they say the blood be on us. He goes, you've got a troop. You take care of it. Go use your own guards. And so notice verse 66. They went and made the tomb not sort of secure, not, you know, they kind of put some duct tape and and made it as good as possible. No, they, they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they've got armed soldiers, trained professionals to watch this tomb, and they've sort of sealed it, sort of like a youth group chaperone, right, who who goes by, everybody's at curfew, and they get them in the hotel rooms, and then they go by and they put tape on all the doors. In the morning, you wake up and the tape's been, you know, tampered with, you know that the youth were up to something. It's kind of like that. They seal the tomb. Nobody's going to get by, No way any human efforts, no way any human efforts will succeed in breaking through this security set up by the chief priests and the scribes. Their plan is foolproof, at least as far as human beings are concerned. But notice, they they agree, he's really dead, so we're going to make sure that his body doesn't go anywhere. That brings us to the second half of our passage. and uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, we'll look at it similarly, the, the friends of Jesus, they go to the tomb, verse one of 28. Now after the Sabbath. Again, Matthew's just <laughs> sort of saying, "Look who's working on the Sabbath. look who's keeping the Sabbath like a faithful child of God. After the Sabbath towards the dawn of the first day of the week Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb It's very nondescript right we see other places in the gospels they have they've brought with them all these perfumes and spices and things to, to further prepare the body we have none of that in Matthew because he, he wants our attention on verse 2 and behold there was an earthquake a great one notice this isn't some tectonic plates of shifting under the San Andreas Fault in California. This is a supernatural shake-up. You see that right in verse 2. Uh, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This earthquake doesn't bubble up from underneath the ground. It comes down from heaven. It's a supernatural event. The power of God Notice this angel, he's very impressive in appearance, he looks like lightning, he's got white as snow clothing on, super impressive strength, he just single-handedly rolls this stone aside and then he kind of sits on it. The guards, <laughs> we'll come back to them a little bit later, but see the guards in verse 4, they, they tremble, they, essentially they faint. They're so afraid, they just drop over as kind of like dead men. And the angel, completely ignoring them, he doesn't run up and start splashing water on their face. He just turns to Mary and Mary and says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 5. If we could travel back in time, what do, what do you think it would have been like to hear the words of verse 6 with these two ladies? I imagine it would just have to be this soul quaking kind of event that would just topple any towers of fear and any sense of doubt or, or uncertainty about anything. Look what this angel says. He is not here he has risen. As he said. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. The tomb's empty, and the angel says, you want to know why? Because Jesus is alive. That's why the tomb's empty. And then immediately, the angel gives them some instructions, some marching orders. First thing, come, make, verify for me, please, that this tomb is, in fact, empty look in there, stoop down, see any bodies? No? Okay, good. Now go and tell his disciples what's taken place, that he is risen from the dead. And behold, verse 7, halfway through it, the angel says he's going to go before you to Galilee, and when you get there, you're going to see him. Amazing. So, still shaken up, they, they, they run from the tomb. They book it out of there, going to tell his 11 deserting disciples about what has taken place. And notice there, there's still fear and great joy, just the emotional overload. I mean, this is blowing circuits here. There, there, there's just no way to fathom how amazing this would have been for them. Just think a little bit more about that. They have followed Jesus for two, three years of their lives now. They have ministered to his needs. They've kind of been the logistical detail that, that sets up the, the dinner parties and, and make sure that Jesus has all things that he needs to be strong for his mission to, to proclaim the kingdom of God and they've, they've seen him heal paralyzed people. They've seen him feed multitudes with a few fish. They've likely at least minimally heard about him walking on water they've seen him give sight to blind men raise the dead, cast out demons and preach as someone who has authority and now this angel who looks like a lightning bolt shows up and says he's not here he's risen imagine what must be going through their minds as they run from that tomb, I'm not sure I could put one foot in front of the other but they do And then look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Greetings. And they did the only thing that would make any sense in this situation. They come up to him, they throw themselves down on the ground, they grab his nail-pierced feet, and they worship their risen king. Jesus gives them essentially the same message as the angel. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Well, lest we miss it, after Jesus reassures them, don't be afraid. It's really me. You have nothing to fear now or ever again. Look what he calls the people he wants them to go tell go and tell my brothers we see at the end that the people who gather in Galilee are the 11 disciples these guys have left Jesus with their tail between their legs and their tail between their legs in his hour of greatest need and look what he calls them My brothers. Those two words are so full of compassion, it's hard to elaborate. He still loves them, and when he appears to them in Galilee, he will say, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. I ain't going nowhere. You're my family. He brings them back into the fold. These guys who, who, like Peter, just go out and weep bitterly for denying him three times the one who they adamantly said one after the other we will never leave your side they've gone and Jesus says tell my brothers they'll see me soon it's amazing see how gracious Jesus is he's awesome but lest we forget these guards are still over there in this pile of armor and metal boots gotta deal with these guys so, while, verse 11, while the ladies are going to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. All that had taken place. Now, minimally, they would have said four things. Uh, Sirs, we felt this earthquake, um, we saw this angel, it looked like lightning. Uh, we we saw the stone rolled away from the mouth of the tomb, and most importantly, sir, the, the tomb's empty. Body's not here. I don't know what happened, but all this stuff happened. Just wanted you to know about it. Can you imagine the career implications for these guys. They failed. At, they had one job. And They failed. Their one job was to guard a dead body in a tomb secured by all human measures to be impenetrable. And they failed. Punishment is very likely here. Not sort of a dock in pay, but likely some kind of physical beating for being bad guards. But certainly embarrassment too, right? You can imagine these emotions of the guard going to bring this news to the chief priests. Unfortunately I don't think the chief priests are going to end up as a reference on their next job application. They failed. They couldn't guard a dead body. Maybe they need a new line of work. Notice now the chief priests, they hear this information They don't start praising God. They don't start spreading this news as good. They gather their cohorts, the elders, and the rest of the council, and they put their brains together to figure out what they should do. These are the brightest religious minds in Jerusalem, and here's what they come up with. Uh, They bribe the guards, the large sum of money, Be thinking kind of Judas and how he received money for betraying Jesus. Chief priests, they've got all this (laughs) excess money, so they bribe the guards, and then in verse thirteen, they craft a lie. They've heard the facts of the matter. There's an angel there. The supernatural thing happened. The tomb's empty, and they bribe and lie. Say Guards tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Wait, if, if, we're, if we're remembering, back in chapter 27, this is the very thing they've secured the tomb to ensure doesn't happen. And now, because the facts of the matter give them no alternative, they use it for their story amazing. They don't care at all about the facts. They hate Jesus. They want his message and his authority, they want it squashed. They don't care. You see that because their story isn't just implausible, like, maybe. It's not just irrational, it's impossible. Sleeping guards cannot identify disciples in the dark through their eyelids. The chief priests know the facts mean their version of the story isn't even possible. The guards were awake, not asleep. The disciples were long gone cowards. Matthew's got them nowhere in this story. The two Marys, as faithful as they are, probably aren't going to turn into the Incredible Hulk and roll this stone away. Oh yeah, and there's that angel guy. But money talks for these guards. They're embarrassed. They're afraid. They're likely out of work, so they'll take the bribe. And the chief priest promising, "We'll we'll take care of the governor. We'll take care of Pilate if he hears anything about this." Promise of cash and safety is enough for these guards to lie. And to take the chief priest's lie and spread it around town to all of the Jewish people. Matthew says this story is the one that's being spread to the day that he is writing this letter. It's amazing. The story that goes out to the people. There's one of he's not in the tomb, he's risen. And the other is he's not in the tomb because his disciples duped our guards, crashed through our security, and they swiped his body. We don't know where the body is, but we know they did it, even though that angel guy's there, and we're liars. See where the burden of proof is, friends? It's not with the Christians in this story. The burden of proof is with the liars, the real imposters, the frauds, who will take the message of Jesus and suppress it at all costs because their problem is not with whether or not the resurrection can happen. Their problem is with Jesus. They hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. The tomb is empty, they say, because the disciples stole the body. That's an impossible story crafted by men who hate Jesus. Facts are irrelevant to them and it only supports the truthfulness and validity of the eyewitness accounts that Matthew has put before us. It's brilliant writing, it's a brilliant argument that Matthew has here, but more than that, the truth wins, doesn't it? Jesus really died. The tomb is really empty because he is risen, as he said. That's what the text tells us. Let me try and wrap us up and, and apply this a little bit for us. If you're not a Christian, you need to contend with the fact that the Matthew who wrote this book was, was himself purposing to write history. He wanted to encode the facts, what really happened here. Jesus is alive. He was crucified, died, buried, and then three days raised. That's the truth of the matter. And you need to reckon with him. Please do so. If you have any questions about what that looks like, let's talk. But then, Christians in the room, I, I hope this is being refreshing to you. That, that the resurrection is, is not just something that we, we talk about on Easter now. But, but you're starting to see that this lays claim over our whole lives. It reformats our thinking and our living, our decision-making, how we spend our time. Because Jesus is alive, his work on the cross is validated. It's effective. Christ Jesus died for our sins. He gave his life as a ransom for many. His blood has washed away our sin. Jesus, thank you. This means he's worthy of our worship. That we would take all of our heart and all of our mind, our mental energy, and all of our strength, and we would aim it at delighting in him forever. He died for our sins. It's legit. He means for us to know that because he's alive. Then not just his work on the cross, his words. You know, how many red letters are in your Bible in this Gospel of Matthew? And his words are true for you today. He wants you to just bundle them all up and just embrace them. and Love them. His promises are true for you today. And just give you three right from Matthew's Gospel. Because Jesus is alive... When he says these things, you can bank on them being true. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's present. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He will help you. when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's coming back to reign as king. This should give us great hope in this interim period. Is anybody in the room suffering? Has it been a hard week for anybody? Has it Has been a hard life for anybody? You're in the midst of a relationship that's just crumbling. and You don't know what to do about it. Maybe you just have this nagging physical impairment that's just not going away. And you know that it, it may very well not go away. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're, there's just this mental illness. And you're like, gosh, if I could just get rid of this thing, I would be so much better off. And I, I can't promise relief from any of those things but Jesus is alive he's present he will help you and he's coming back that third one should be particularly good for you for enduring hard things because that means there's an end point his return will blot it all out and obliterate all suffering and tear and pain there will only be joy forevermore because Jesus is alive he conquered the grave That's your hope. We can entrust ourselves to him fully. Because he's alive today and every day. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is your living king. There's great compassion for you. One last thing. Since we're talking about Jesus' words, it means that his commands... Our life for us, his people. When Jesus says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, and in the same breath can say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He means for us to obey him, friends, in everything. To purpose, to continue to greater and greater degrees of godliness and faithfulness and following him and being about his mission around the world. Like Joseph of Arimathea in our passage, we're to just risk it all so we can identify with him because it's going to be worth it. That store and treasure in heaven, and there is no fading or moths or thieves in heaven. We can bank on this. So, friends, by faith, let the resurrection be fresh today. Let it invigorate you. Let it propel you out of the doors of this building. Be on mission for him and to love him more. And if you're not there, if it if it's just seems kind of dusty, just let me just encourage you, be alone with God. Do some heart work. Reflect on the reality of this resurrection and ask God to meet you in that. He will bring fire down onto the bare logs of our sacrifice if we ask him to do that. He, he will meet us when we seek this to mean something for us as his people. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just pray that the resurrection would be fresh for us. Holy Spirit, this would invigorate and ignite our faith. Jesus, you are the crucified one. Behold, you are alive forevermore. We worship you give you thanks for your word, pray you would bless it, in Christ's name.